Thank you for checking out the Faith City Church Podcast. We believe that you'll be blessed by today's message. We're going to talk about communion. Today's Communion Sunday. And you know, I was looking back and we've, we've talked about communion several different times, you know, throughout, you know, I mean, I don't know how many years I've, we've done communion. We've done it for all these years. But I've begun to get new revelations of it probably in the last decade. But, you know, I've talked quite a bit and I've opened up quite a bit about it and, and what it means. But there's some things I think that if we were to understand the symbolism and kind of where it came from, it would even help us to enjoy it. How many, do you realize that you should enjoy communion? You should enjoy the Eucharist? I mean, this is a beautiful rite or ritual that the body of Christ has and was initiated by Jesus himself. And so many times we come into it from this perspective of, I hope I'm okay. I wonder if I can. I wonder if I shouldn't. Am I a member of the church? Am I not? And all these things that really don't matter because everyone, let me say it again, everyone is welcome at the Lord's table. It's not whether or not, I mean, think about this, you guys. When they would meet house to house and receive communion, they didn't, you know, they didn't belong to St. John's or St. Joe's or Word of Faith or this camp or that camp. In order to have it, they just met house to house. And they knew one thing. They loved Jesus and they wanted to go the way of Jesus. I mean, pure and simple. And so sometimes I think we make all these hurdles and stuff for people in order to you know, let's make sure that, you know, they're okay. And I understand why, because we've misread or misunderstood scripture. So I want to talk about this today. And, and really the title of the message and our talk today is the beauty of communion, the beauty of communion. Now you can follow along with us right here up on the screens. If you'd like, if you're at home, uh, we got a great crew back there and Heidi and Jason and Ethan, they're making sure that you're getting good sound, you're getting the slides, you're getting everything you need. But also, if you want to follow along in the YouVersion Bible app, you can do that. I haven't said it in a while, but every week we actually put our notes into this YouVersion Bible app. It makes it really easy. So if you open up the YouVersion app, you go down to the, I think it's the right-hand corner, and, and click that More tab. It'll open up. About halfway down, you'll see Events. Just click Events. When that opens up, you should see Face City, Michigan campus right at the top. You can follow along. You can add your own notes. In fact, at the bottom, that's what Pete was mentioning earlier, earlier is that there's a link if you want to give right there to PayPal. Just everything is right there within that. Then you can save that. You can actually save those notes so you can go on any time in the future and just review them. Because you know what? How many know we need to review sometimes? How many have found out that you, you don't just hear something one time and remember it forever? Just, I wish, Right? Oh, you, you said that, son? I'm sorry, I forgot, right? You wish you could remember those things, but when you look at notes, when you go over notes, when you, I see some actually taking physical notes, that's weird. Is that called paper and a pen? I haven't seen that in a while. But people take physical notes, and it helps you remember, I don't know what the percentage is, but so many more times the material that you're hearing. And I believe this is important because as we get into communion today, this, this idea, and then receive the communion elements together at the end of service, I'm hoping that you have just even a better glimpse a better perspective of how good your father is, how good Jesus is, and that the Holy Spirit is there just urging you to participate, to be the part of the body that he's called you to be, amen? So today I wanna to talk about the beauty of communion. Um, some refer to it as the Eucharist. And again, we spoke many times on this in the past, and you know the scriptural way of receiving communion, 
that it's, it's not all about me and what I've done wrong. It's about what Jesus and Jesus did right, right? And the importance of it being something that we to do together as a corporate body. Although I believe any time, any place, anywhere, I've told people, you know, I've been in my office and I've grabbed milk, grabbed milk and cookies. That's all I had because I just had something in my heart. I kind of want to seal in my heart remember Jesus, what he's done for me in this situation. And so I would participate just one-on-one, -on -one, Holy Spirit me. And you know what? It would just seal some things in my heart. So it's important that we do it as often as we need to, but there's something about corporate worship. There's something about doing this together. But I don't think we've really ever discussed the history of the communion meal. And maybe you're here today and you're like, yeah, I've already heard all this, but maybe it's a reminder. But for some of us, Maybe we don't really know the history. I mean, there's so much symbolism in this ritual. It's absolutely beautiful. Which, by the way, let me say this. A ritual isn't a bad thing. I know sometimes in, in this way of grace and the grace life, we tend to think that, you know, a ritual is like, well, that's just religious. It's something you do over and over again. Well, I do believe that sometimes, this is where rituals become bad, is when we do them so much that it loses its meaning. Now that can happen, especially if, like I said earlier, you're doing things out of obligation versus inspiration. Something inspired to do out of his love and goodness and relationship that you have with him. And so often we can lose the, the meaning of what it, what it is, what it encompasses. And then sometimes I think we do things like communion or the Eucharist because we believe now, I do believe it can make you feel closer to God, become more aware of his presence, but we think somehow it draws God closer to us, as if he could get any closer. He lives in you. How, how can he get any closer than that, right? He lives in you. And so sometimes we've turned this into a churchy, religious thing that we just do out of obligation or, God, please just see me or hear me. He sees you. He hears you. He's with you. He promised to never leave you or forsake you. But I want to talk about a little history. Say history. History is fun for me. Hopefully it is for you. If not, too bad. But we're going to get into it today. But I think you'll enjoy some of this. Number one, I want to say this, is that the Jewish Passover became the communion or Eucharist. It's Jewish Passover that actually became communion or the Eucharist. Now, they call it Passover back in the day, and even today, many Jews still participate in this and celebrate this. It was also called the Festival of Unleavened Bread. Um, some refer to it as the Passover Cedar. Uh, that word cedar in Hebrew just means order. It's the order in which things are done, the order that we see things. But all these things were done uh, in Passover to commemorate the biblical story of Exodus. How many are familiar with this? So we have the Israelites, they're in captivity, they're in slavery to the Egyptians. Moses comes and says, let my people go, voice of God. He's in the whole process and he leads them out. And so Passover is all about this act of exiting Egypt and gaining freedom. It's all about this God who freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And so we need to remember this, that Jesus was born a Jew, born under the law. And so Jesus, who at the Last Supper, when he really initiates this new way of doing things, he was 33 years old, and so he's participated in, I mean, at least 33 of these Passovers. He's probably remembered at least close to 30 of these as a child. And so Jesus tells his disciples, he says, I want you to go, and, and I want you guys to prepare a room 
so that we can celebrate this meal. Now, let me say this. When he said this to them, they weren't like, what are we doing? What are we preparing this room for? No, they were like, oh yeah, Passover, makes sense. In fact, they might have said to Jesus, hey Jesus, we're just wondering, Passover's upon us, it's in a day or two, uh, where are we going to have it? Because they were, they were good Jewish boys, they wanted to participate in Passover, and Jesus said, go prepare a room so that we can celebrate this meal. And so in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, we're not going to go there right now, but we see that uh, Jesus is actually getting ready to participate in the very last Passover meal of his life. What's that? The very last meal of his, am I mic down? Okay. Um, the very last meal of his, of his uh, life before he goes to the cross. And how, what do we refer this to as? The last supper. How many have heard of the last supper before? And it would be the last time that he would receive this meal before his death, burial, and resurrection. So, here's the question. What would the Passover meal look like? Because in order to understand the Eucharist and communion, we have to look at historically, um, what did this Passover meal look like? What did it mean? So, as they walked into this room that had been already prepared for them, the first thing that the disciples would see is they would see this short-legged table surrounded by cushions. So it'd be surrounded by these cushions, and there's a reason, because in Passover, they were supposed to recline at the table as a symbol of being free. Have you ever seen this, like, traditionally, as Jews? I mean, Jews, literally, they, they have this, this little short table, and they're sitting around with all these different, you know, um, uh, cushions and stuff, and they're just reclining and leaning back. But you know that they were supposed to do that? I mean, think about this. This whole meal, and we're going to go through it, and we're going to see how it was throwing back to their ancestors and what they went through in slavery. Now think about this. There wasn't one day that they were able to relax and rest and recline. In fact, there was one point where he said, you know what, they're going to work seven days a week, every day, all day long. There was no relaxation. And so just even the table itself and the cushions were saying to them, guys, relax, recline, Enjoy the freedom that you now have as Israel. Is that making sense so far? Of course, when they would come into this table, it was full of all kinds of foods and, and drink. And, and what all these foods and drink uh, meant, they all meant things that were deeply symbolic of this exodus from Egypt. And so here's the next question. What was on the Passover cedar plate? And so I want to bring up a picture right now. And I want us to just kind of get a visual here. Hopefully you can see this. This is a typical cedar plate. And what you would see is a few different things on here. Uh, if you're on the app, you can see the picture there as well. But first of all, and I already said this before, I think I already said this, but the word cedar means order. So there was an order to this and there was a reason that they did it the way they did it. Now, the first thing that we can look at here is the shank bone. Say the shank bone. Now, this is from a roasted leg of lamb. Not lamb of leg, leg of lamb, right? And so it was the shank bone. And this is one of the most striking symbols of the Passover because it commemorates the, they call it the paschal lamb. There was a paschal lamb sacrifice that was made the night the ancient Hebrews, their ancestors, had fled Egypt. And so for them, this was symbolic of that night, that sacrifice they made to God in honor and thankfulness for being freed from slavery out of Egypt. Now, some people even say this, that it symbolizes the outstretched arm of God. The, this word in the Hebrew actually is ziorah, and it means the arm. And just a little side note, 
something that was practiced since somewhere in the 11th century, instead of the roasted uh, leg lamb here, the, the, the shank bone or whatever, you could actually use a roasted beet if you were vegetarian or vegan. Any vegetarians or vegans in the house? Let's go. Anyway, but if you were vegetarian or vegan, they actually said, hey, let's go with a roasted beet. So it symbolized that, that whole thing there. The other one on the plate, the other thing we see here in the middle is an egg. It's actually a roasted egg. The roasted egg, the, they call it the beitza. The beitza is a symbol in so many different cultures. Uh, it usually signifies springtime, renewal, you know, uh, a new life, new birth. But here it stands in place of one of the sacrificial offerings which was performed on the days or in the days of Second Temple Judaism. So it was a symbol of that. But another interpretation of this egg is that the egg is like the Jewish people. Even though, you know, these people have been uh, ridiculed and enslaved, I mean, the hotter you make things for them, the tougher they get. And so this egg, it isn't really eaten on every meal, but they have to make sure there's a roast on it. They have to tan the hide, so to speak. Now, for us, this is kind of like, I don't I mean, like at Thanksgiving, we're just like, get the food out. Who cares? But for them, this symbolism meant so much. And I think sometimes as a culture, we've forgotten these things. We, we've forgotten to look back from where we've came from, where our ancestors came from, what that means. And so for them, this meant so much. And so you had the roasted you know, lamb shank bone. You have the roasted egg. And then you have the maror, say maror. It's just a word for bitter herb. And really, any bitter herb would work, though a lot of times they would use horseradish. Do you see it up there? It's like the, the top left there to the egg. I'll tell you, I love me some horseradish. Just put it in some wasabi sauce. And uh, yeah, I use that on my, on my, uh, my sushi all the time. But it, they needed something that was bitter, and there's a reason why. Bitter herbs bring tears to the eyes. And for them, it was recalling the bitterness and the tears of their days in slavery for their ancestors. Can you see how deep this meaning goes? Now, we're getting to where it goes. You're like, are we becoming Jewish? No, but if it weren't for the Jews, Jesus wouldn't exist. If it weren't for the Jewish people, we wouldn't be doing communion. I want us to see the connection here, okay? And so this bitter herb refers to the slavery in Egypt, but some people actually, they don't just go back to Egypt they're called to look at their own bitter enslavements, whether it be addiction or habits or things in their life. What has God freed you from? And what pain did you go through? Because how many know that addiction and bad habits can bring tears? It can bring bitterness to your life. And so it's through this way together. And think about this too. It's a family. It's a group together participating in life, being honest, being open, being vulnerable. And this makes a big difference. It was a culture who was, is really, it's still, these days is very, very tight. They take care of their own. And so uh, after the, the bitter herb there, we have the carpus. The carpus is a green vegetable. It's usually parsley, but any you know, spring green will do. Actually, actually, some Jews in certain areas where they didn't have access to this, maybe the time of year, they would actually use a boiled potato. You know, some cultures that literally lived on potatoes, in fact, science has told us you can live on potatoes and water and get everything you need. It's the perfect food. It's absolutely amazing. But what they would do is they would either have this boiled potato, they'd have these spring greens, and either of these would be dipped into a bowl. It was in, in the middle of the table of salt water. And again, just like that bitter herb, it was recalled the crushing days of slavery. So they're remembering this. So there's all these different herbs and things 
bring in all these different bitterness. They also would have a, a thing of lettuce on the table as well. It was all part of that bitterness. Uh, sometimes they would use like green onion or different things. Anything that had kind of a bitter taste to it, again, they would dip it in the salt water and they remind them of those crushing slave days of the bitterness of the tears of their ancestors. But then we have this really cool thing. It's, it's in complete stark difference to the bitter herbs. It was the well, I mean, in English, you can say that, but they say harozet. I can't really do that. It's almost like you're hacking, right? But it's a harozet. And it was a sweet salad of mashed apples, raisins, uh, nuts, and plums. And it was coated with cinnamon. Now, this is really cool. They actually coated it with cinnamon and mixed it together. So they wanted it. You see it at the top of the plate right here. They did this because to them, it looked like mortar. What do you think about when you think of mortar in the Israelites? You think of the bricks they made. So they did this as symbolism. So think about this. They're looking at this plate and they're remembering their ancestors. They're remembering, the, first of all, the hand of God that was outstretched, that, that freed them from slavery. But then they don't forget the sacrifice. They don't forget the bitterness and the tears and the things that they went through. They don't forget the brick after brick after brick after brick that their people had made for the Egyptians pretty powerful, isn't it? But then we have unleavened bread. Now, sometimes it's stacked on the plate. Sometimes it's over here, unleavened bread, some matzah, some type of bread. And why would you think that they had unleavened bread? Now, let me just say this. I love unleavened bread. I mean, you, you give me a nice chunk of unleavened bread. I spread some hummus on there, uh, stack a few falafels on there, Put a little tahini, come on, what, what, little tzatziki sauce, and I'm in heaven. Throw on some onion and some, I mean, that's just like, you roll it up and it's like, hallelujah. But they weren't thinking of falafel sandwiches back then. There was a reason that it was unleavened. In their haste to leave Egypt, the Israelites, they couldn't let their bread rise, and so they brought unleavened bread with them. That's where it came from. And so, to them, their memory, when they eat this, they think about their ancestors who the night that they left Egypt, there wasn't time to, wait, wait, my bread's rising. It's like, no, we have to go. We got to go now. And so they had this unleavened bread. In fact, in Exodus twelve fourteen, it says, you shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. It became part of who they were. You see this? It was sewn in the fabric of their culture and their society. So to commemorate this, the Jews didn't eat bread for eight days during Passover or anything, that, you know, regular breads and cakes and things with yeast in them that rose. It was all unleavened. And then, of course, we come to one of the, the last things, and that's the wine. Say the wine. How many like a good wine? You, oh, you, I know you can't, buddy. You're 10. I'm talking to the adults right now. <laughs> I can't, Dad. Good, buddy. I'm glad that you realized that. <laughs> but, but the wine, there was usually wine on the table in different, you know, um, um, manners or whatever, but they would have a cup in front of them, and they were actually obligated to drink four glasses of wine. Yes, plural. Four glasses of wine. And we're thinking, wow, these people like to drink. But there was a reason, because each cup they would have, they have one before the meal, they'd have two during, and they have one after the meal. That one after the meal is the one that Jesus takes and uses and initiates a new way. We'll get into that. But they had these four cups, and each cup of wine represented the four expressions of the deliverance promised by God. And it was, it's in Exodus, like chapter six. He, he said three things. He said, I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you. 
Now, in, in full expression, that was, I will bring you out of the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from the bondage. Here, here, give me another glass. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And then lastly, but you know, certainly not the least, I will take you, look at this, as my people. See, sometimes the, the Jews get a bad rap. We see Jesus get on the Pharisees and religious leaders. You know that Jesus didn't necessarily have a problem with Judaism. He had a problem with where it had moved to. See, when we look at the culture at the time that the Israelites became a nation, we see things like the law. We see things like being said like, you know, an eye for an eye. And to us, that's barbaric. Well, yeah, it was thousands of years ago. But before Israel became a nation and came into the picture and they were serving this God who, who gave through Moses this law, life was different. There were causers like, if you bump someone, I'm going to kill you. That's not eye for an eye. You just bump them back, right? So we think, well, what? I mean, I thought Jesus was all about, you know, loving your enemies and not repaying evil for evil. Of course, but how many know this, that it's hard sometimes as humans on a journey to go from here to here. So what God did is he said, okay, I know that the cultures are full of angry gods who demand sacrifice. So one of the first things I'm going to tell you when you offer sacrifices, the first main sacrifices, because you, you understand sacrifice. This is a language. This is a culture you understand. Let's stay within that culture. But now instead of you offering to a deity, hoping somehow out there they're okay with you, I'm going to actually word it in Hebrew in such a way that when you offer, you're actually drawing near to me because I'm a God that you can draw near to. Completely different than any other culture or nation at the time. And so he was already setting this, changing this. Even in the law, you know, if you think about it, the first two or three laws is simply saying, stay connected to me, you guys. I'm your source of life. And when you do, the rest of the law is going to play itself out. This is what it looks like when you live a life connected to me. Sometimes they're like, oh, that law sucks. Well, no, not for them. It gave them some parameters at the time. It began to move them and show them how they were supposed to live, how they could connect to Yahweh without any inhibitions. And he even said, let's have sacrifices so that you can feel okay in your own conscience so you won't run from me, you'll stay in relationship with me. I mean, there's such beauty in this. We can't throw this out. And then he said things like, no, no, guys, we're not going to kill someone because he looked at us wrong. Eye for an eye. If you steal, well, something's going to happen. In fact, this is what's crazy in other cultures. If you stole, some cultures say, okay, well, they stole with their right hand, cut it off. The law doesn't have anywhere where anyone's maimed or dismembered. So can you see this is a huge, giant step forward from where culture was? But then Jesus came on the picture. He goes, okay, guys, let's move it up. Let's raise the stakes. Now I'm going to say this. Love your enemy. Pray for those who despitefully use you. Don't repay evil for evil. And so he was bringing some clarity to it. But see, Jesus didn't have an issue with Judaism as much as he had an issue with what had happened. They had never grown through the journey. And now their own people, they were making outcasts and saying, you can't serve with us anymore. You can't worship with us anymore. You can't be with us anymore. It's just making sense. And so with that wine, I love that last cup of wine is saying, I will take you as my people. You are my own. You're not orphans. You're not alone. I'm with you. 
And so then we see that Jesus, you know, he would open the meal. This is kind of typical for a rabbi. They would open the meal with a psalm that praised God. But then he did something interesting. He took the bread, he gave thanks for it, and completely breaking tradition, he followed with new words. He says, take and eat. This is my body, which will be given up for you. This bread was now his body. See how he's slowly shifting things over? He's taking symbols within the cedar plate, within the table. He's taking these symbols and he's actually, he's, he's kind of re, retooling them, so to speak. Refashioning them in such a way that they can understand and, and stay connected. But he's making it simple. He's bringing everything in the two items. So he breaks the bread. And so this is, I mean, really, historically, the first celebration of communion, the first celebration of the Eucharist in history was at the Last Supper. And then after the meal, he took that cup filled with wine that you would normally take. And it's interesting because you would take that cup and it says, I will take you as my people. He literally was saying all that through that cup. I will take you as my people. Why? Because I'm going to remove all spot, all stain, any condemnation, any shame from your life that makes you feel like we're not in relationship. And so he fills it with wine. He, instead of making the usual toast, he again broke tradition and he says, take and drink. Now here comes some more symbolism. He's changing it over. He said, this is my blood. It's shed for you and for all. Say all. Jesus didn't die for just one person or one people group. His blood was shed for all. Now, I know some people have an issue with that. Some people have an issue with all this blood talk, but that's what they understood. Do you hear me? That's what they, that's what they understood. And so sometimes we mix it up with God needed blood to be okay with us. But if we look at the scriptures, God was with Jesus on the cross. He wasn't far and away saying, give me some blood and then I'll be okay. See, people... In those cultures, the blood eased their conscience. Hebrews said that it actually cleaned their conscience, cleared their conscience in a way that they could actually feel like they're approachable to God. And so Jesus used what they knew at the time. And so he uses the bread. He uses the wine. And then, this is interesting, he doesn't just do it one time. He then gives them and anyone who followed them the power to celebrate communion or celebrate the Eucharist, he says, do this in memory or remembrance of me. In other words, don't stop doing this, guys. Just like we have this yearly Passover celebration, this is a new way, a new covenant, a new thing that I'm initiating. Don't stop doing it. Remind yourself over and over and over about this new way of life. Isn't that cool? So then we see as the church, it went from a meal to worship. Uh, gradually, the apostles and you know, their successors developed the Eucharist celebration into the structure that endures to this day. And most of us are pretty familiar with how communion runs. I know every church is a little bit different, but it's pretty much the same. They first actually named it the breaking of the bread. But soon they saw the need to separate this rite or ritual from the meal. A couple reasons. First of all, there were some abuses going on. Remember Paul in Corinthians He's chastising them because there was this issue where he said, you guys, you're not rightly discerning the body of Christ. You're not doing this correctly. And then we take that and we think that means if I don't confess every sin before I come in and I make sure I'm totally good, if I drink the juice, I might die. It has nothing to do with that. 
I mean, you literally had the rich and the poor and they were at odds against each other because the poor would work all day. They were mainly probably servants to many of those in the church who were rich and the rich would come on the day of feast because it was, it was a full meal and they would eat everything and they would drink everything. I mean, Paul even says, man, some of you, you're, you're like, you're drunk off your rear end by the time everything's finished up. And then the poor come in, probably one of the best meals they can experience, and there's nothing left. And so there was division. There was dissension among them. He says, you guys, you are not rightly discerning the body of Christ. You're not understanding that this whole, this whole Eucharist, this whole communion, this meal was supposed to unite us. It was supposed to remind us that we're united in Christ, and yet you're doing the very opposite of that. And so that's really what the issue was. And so you, of course, had some abuse of the meal. And they also wanted a more prayerful setting for this act of worship. And so we see that it, you know, it begins to change. It begins to change. And actually, it's interesting. They also move Eucharist to Sundays in memory of Christ's resurrection. Isn't that cool history? Just to kind of see where it came from. But there's something really important that we need to see here. And that's the body and the bread. Now... There's only two elements that Jesus brought it down to, right? And the first one was the bread. What is the bread? The bread is the body of Christ, right? And so you have the body of Christ. And so we have to see that there's a reason that Jesus was bringing this around. Do we actually have a note on that, that the Christ, his body was, is that in the notes? It's not? Okay. Yeah. So what's that? Yeah, the bread equals the body of Christ, yeah. But then what we see is we see that in Hebrews 10.10, Hebrews is a great read. Now, it's really deep. I did a series on this years ago in the old building. I don't know if anyone remembers on Wednesday nights. And I, after I saw people falling asleep, I stopped, like on chapter 6. Because I get into the nerdy stuff sometimes and the deepness. But there, there's so much in Hebrews that basically the whole book is comparing the sacrificial system of old covenant to the sacrifice of Christ, the new covenant. It's doing a comparison and it's saying that Jesus is greater than all of this, that he's the high priest. And so it goes through all that blood talk. But in Hebrews 10, 10, it says, for God's will for, was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ, right? But look at this, once for all time. Because you see what's happening here is there was this Passover where they would sacrifice year after year after year after year, the Day of Atonement. They would sacrifice year after year after year after year. And this sacrifice in Hebrews 10.10 of Jesus was saying, no, this sacrifice is a once for all time, done and over with. Isn't that cool how Jesus uses that? And then we have the wine. What is the wine? The wine equals the blood of Christ. And I love this in 1 John 1, 7. It says, but if we are living in the light as God is in the light. Now, now let me stop you there for a minute because I, I know when we hear this, we're like, well, what do you mean living in light? Am I? Am I not? Am I? Well, it depends. But the Bible talks about light, light and darkness quite often. And it usually refers to darkness as ignorance and light as revelation. So I believe what's being said is if you live in the revelation, the revelation that God has and has given to you, then look at we have fellowship with one another. Why? Well, because we see things the same, right? But look what it goes on to say. It says, in the blood of Jesus, his son, what does it do? It cleanses us from what? Some of our sins. No, all sin. 
I was talking to someone the other day and we were talking about the, this idea that, that the final sacrifice of Christ has cleansed all sin for all time, which baffles people. Do you realize that the sacrifice of Christ, it cleanses sin, past, present, and future? And some of us have an issue with that because we're like, well, how can it cleanse all sin for all time? Because it's the sacrifice of Jesus. That's what love does. He remembers your sin as far as the east is from the west. It's a done deal. Now listen, sin still has consequences. I'm not saying you're going to get away with anything, but when you begin to realize who you are and begin to walk that out, you'll sin less. Does that make sense? Because you realize that you're not cut out for that. And so I want to look at this as, as we've looked at this history because you, know, you have the, the um, Passover meal, you have the cedar plate, you have Jesus transitioning things to the bread and the wine, you have it done as a meal still with the celebration. Eventually it comes down to the two elements which are the body and the blood of Christ. And it's just this amazing thing in history. It starts basically in the upper room and ends up in cathedrals and little villages and homes everywhere, all around the world. And we still do it to this day. It's absolutely beautiful. It's withstood the test of time. But I want us to look at this as we get ready to have communion today. And I'm hoping that this has helped us get a, a better understanding of how deep this goes, how the symbolism is so deep and it means so much in our lives. And that when we receive it, it's, it's like the real deal. It should show you who you truly are. It should show you the love that God has for you. But in Luke 22, starting with verse 14, it says, when the hour had come, he sat down, meaning Jesus, and the 12 apostles with him. Then he said to them, look at this, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now think about these words, with fervent desire. So there's something about this Passover that's different than all other Passovers, right? He says, for I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, I just want us to look real quick at this word, this desire. The word desire in the Greek is epithemia, and it means craving or longing. So literally, Jesus is saying, I've craved, I've longed for this opportunity to share this meal with you. Now think about this. Jesus has done over 30 of these Passover meals. He's done at least two or three with the disciples, right? This could be the third or fourth, depending on when it was. I don't know the history. I wasn't there. But they've had at least two of these Passover meals. And Jesus is saying, but this meal, this Passover meal, this Last Supper, I've been longing to have this meal with you. And then we see why, because he changes everything over. See, we know that Passover was the Jewish celebration of the exodus out of Egypt, their freedom from slavery, their celebration of their covenant with God. But Jesus is bringing them into a new way of life, a new type of freedom. In fact, I love this in the message translation. It says, when it was time, he sat down, all the apostles with him and said, you have no idea how much I've looked forward to eating this Passover meal with you before I enter my time of suffering. It's the last one I'll eat until we all eat it together in the kingdom of God. Such beautiful words. Words that the apostles at the time didn't even understand. Right? Because when Jesus died, they're like, whoa, what happened? What? He's been telling them all along what was going to happen. And they ran away and they went, it's over until Jesus resurrects. So why did Jesus have such a longing desire to share this meal with his disciples? Why was this Passover meal 
so special compared to the others in the past. I believe it's because of the transition that was about to take place. A brand new covenant. No longer would it be a Passover celebration of freedom from Egypt, but a communion or Eucharist celebration of freedom in Christ. We say like this, a new covenant was being initiated, a brand new way of life. And so here we are today, celebrating this new way of life. That's what communion's about. It's not just, well, is the cracker dry or is it good? Is it gluten-free or not? And all these, you know, is it grape juice? Is it really wine? We fight over all these things. But the symbolism is Jesus saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood, which is shed for you, initiating a brand new way of life. And so communion is really two things. The first one is communion is remembering Jesus. It's not remembering your issues. I know I say this a lot, but if you've never participated in communion with us, I want you to realize that Jesus didn't say, when you, when you are remembering this communion, when you're taking it, I want you to remember all the bad things you do. Jesus didn't say, Remember the stationery that you stole at the office. Remember the person you cussed out on the expressway when they cut you off. I mean, that isn't what Jesus is saying. In essence, Jesus is saying, remember what a lousy human being you are. But I've been in churches who have said basically those words without saying those words. You better check yourself. You better look in your heart. You better make sure every little... And then you get scared. Has anyone ever been scared to receive communion because you're just not sure? I mean, is, it, is something going to happen? Am I going to like die and be exposed? What's going to happen? See, that isn't what Jesus is saying. He said, remember me. Remember what I've done. When you take communion, take a moment to remember that my love is greater than your failings. Remember that my grace trumps your sin. Remember that my strength shines in your weakness. Remember that my supply will always, always, always exceed your need. This is what we're remembering. Jesus simply says two words, remember me. So communion is not you deciding whether you're worthy enough I believe that communion is God's way of saying, you are worthy enough. So come to the table, receive the communion, remember who I am, how I am, how good I am to you, how much I love you, the grace that I have is sufficient for you, that you are perfect and pleasing and holy and acceptable. This is how I see you. You're a dearly loved son. You're a dearly loved daughter. This is how we remember Jesus. And the number two, and this is huge. I learned this, this from uh, Bishop Jamie Engelhardt. This is just huge. But communion is remembering the body of Christ. It's us. It, it's, it's a way of remembering us, bringing us back together, bringing unity to the body of Christ. When done correctly, now here I'm saying this, when done correctly, Remember the Apostle Paul says you're not rightly discerning the body of Christ because you're doing it with dissension and with selfish motives. But when done correctly, you begin to see, wow, I have brothers and sisters all around. We're remembering Jesus and we're remembering 
each other. It's about unity. It's about doing life together. And so again, Jesus said when the hour had come, he sat down, the 12 apostles with him, and this is what Jesus said, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. If Jesus was excited about the Passover meal, or we say the communion meal now, shouldn't we be? Shouldn't it be something that we celebrate, that we do together, realizing that it's not about our faults and our failures, but it's about his goodness and his wins and his success? And really that relationship that we have with Father God. So no longer would it be a Passover celebration of freedom from Egypt. It's now a communion celebration of freedom in Christ. Will you stand with me? Could I get a communion element? I I had one up here and now it's not. (laughs) Please. I want to receive communion with you guys. (laughs) I really hope that I've cleared some things up this morning. Thank you, son. I hope I've cleared some things up for you this morning, you guys. I mean, I know there's a lot of things that, that we've heard and how you should take it. And let me say this. If you're not a member of the church or normal attender, guess what? Receive communion with us because you are a son and daughter of God. So let's enjoy this time together. If you're online right now and you weren't aware, go grab some juice and a cracker or a piece of bread or a cookie or some milk. What a coffee. Maybe you got your bacon and eggs there. Just have a piece of toast and some coffee. Just, Just participate with us this morning because I really want us to realize at the end of the day, I mean, come on, I've had people accuse me. Yeah, you're a love preacher. Yeah, I am because everything's built on love. If you don't feel love, what's the sense? So this should reestablish, it should confirm how good God is and how much he loves you every time you receive this, this communion meal. And so sometimes we think that God's looking down his nose at us, but, you know, if we receive things in the wrong way, but that's just not true. So let's not make this a, you know, a ritualistic kind of churchy thing that we do. Let's make this a bold declaration of faith. When you take this this morning, I want you to realize how deep, how immense his forgiveness, his acceptance, his, his healing, all the blessings that he's given you. Everything he's given you for life and godliness is given to you because he believes you're worth it. And so this morning could be a way of just being thankful, saying thank you for what he's done for you. And so I want you to just take this bread and I want to read a portion of scripture here this morning. It says, then he took the bread and gave thanks and he broke it and he said to them, this is my body, which is given for you. And I've said it already at least once or twice, but what does he say here? Do this in remembrance of who? Me. Remembrance of Jesus. And one thing I I like to correlate this to is as Jesus is standing there and he breaks this bread, And he gives them portions. He says these powerful words. This is my body broken for you. And how many would say that Jesus came to bring us salvation? That word salvation in the Greek, it's beautiful. It's not just praying a prayer and going someplace in the sweet by and by. It means deliverance, preservation, safety, healing, wholeness, restoration. 
Whenever you take this bread, I want you to remember that God is in the business of restoring. God is in the business of of reconnecting broken things, nothing broken, nothing missing. And so if there's any area of your life where you feel broken, physically, emotionally, maybe there's some areas people have treated you wrong, you have a bad self-image, maybe you're just struggling with some things, maybe there's something in your body, an ailment, I encourage you as you take this to just envision that the broken body of Jesus was so that you could be made whole. So even say that as you're taking this, I call this thing in my life whole and unbroken. In the name of Jesus, his body was broken, so you be made whole. Take and eat. It says, likewise, he also took the cup. After supper, there's that fourth cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Brand new covenant. This blood is shed for you. And, and this is the beauty. This is. Let me just give you a personal idea when I receive this blood. Every time I, I receive this blood, I understand that the culture of the time was different. I understand that they dealt with blood and sacrifice and things like that. But there's a deeper meaning to this to me. This blood represents complete removal of any sin. In other words, sometimes we see sin as a barrier to God. And I see that this symbolizes that there's no veil, there's no door, door closed, there's, there's no wall, there's no separation between me and God. Right? There may be estrangement. Estrangement isn't a wall of separation. It's you feeling like you're not worthy or part of something. And we all deal with that. Adam and Eve dealt with that. Think about that. They, they felt this estrangement, but we know there wasn't separation because God came to them. This just blows my mind that we miss this sometimes, that there was estrangement. And they even, even with what God did, he made a sacrifice to make them feel you know, like they were okay with him, even though you know, it wasn't his issue with them. It was them thinking wrong of themselves. They still went out of the garden and thought wrong, and here we are today, right? Still thinking wrong. And we have this idea of estrangement, like if I don't do the right things, God's not near me. What this blood does for me is it's a reminder that he'll never leave me, he'll never forsake me, that the slate is wiped clean. If there's issues in my life and addictions and things that that are controlling my life, the answer is him. Not running away, but going to and saying, I need help, I need healing, I need restoration, I need deliverance. That's what salvation is. And and he's a good daddy. He's a good mommy. He's a good parent. He's going to say, yeah, it's all right here. It's all provided. And so I want you, as you take this today, if there's any issue that you think is separating you from God, realize that's personal estrangement in your own mind. He's promised to never leave you and never forsake you. So Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus. There's no separation. The slate's wiped clean. And now we can have a relationship that's clean and it's up close. In Jesus' name, take and drink. I want to leave you with this. Whenever we do communion and it's done in the name of dead religion, it will leave you sin conscious and condemned. But communion done in the name of Christ 
is one of the healthiest and most liberating things that you can ever do. So remember, each time you take communion, whether you're receiving it here with us corporately, you're receiving it at home or, or with friends or you're in a Bible study, wherever that may be, because you can receive it anywhere you want. The two main things that, that you got to keep forefront in your mind is, number one, it's remembering Jesus, his goodness, his grace, his love for you. But number two, it's about remembering us as a corporate group, but even for some of us, remembering our brokenness bringing ourselves back together and realizing that we are worthy, we are pleasing, we are acceptable. When you start to live life from that place, your actions change, your words change. Who you are just completely changes because you're living out of true identity. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you again for an opportunity to look into the scriptures, to look into some history, to just all in all look into your goodness and this relationship that we have with the divine. That it's not just something we celebrate on Sunday and then we forget about through the week. It's an everyday thing. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you, you're just touching us, touching our heart in such a way that we're becoming more aware of your presence in our life. Because it's easy when you get going through a day and your boss or a coworker, or your mom or your dad or your spouse or your aunt or your uncle or your kids, they say or do something a certain way. It's really hard sometimes to remember, oh, yeah, yeah, make me more aware of your presence, Holy Spirit. But it's in those times that we need to be aware because maybe we'll respond differently. Maybe we'll say things differently. So I pray today and through this week and the weeks to come that becoming more aware of your presence and we're getting to a place where we actually see that we're worthy and that what we have on the inside of us is necessary for the world around us as we begin to see value in ourselves we thank you for these things in Jesus name and everyone said amen for more information about Faith City Church, please go to faithcity.tv. As always, we pray that you would grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.